You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. A reading from the book of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on the behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and will speak contemptuously against their king and their god, and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Let me try to orient you this morning to the book of Isaiah as we prepare to dive in, all right? One of the phrases that we use to describe Coram Deo is the phrase gospel-centered. So we often speak of this as a gospel-centered church. That phrase is intended to capture a lot of things about our DNA, but one of the most important things it's intended to capture is the reality that the gospel is a third way of relating to God, that's different from both irreligion and religion. Or to say it another way, we want to be a church that preaches the gospel to non-Christians and a church that preaches the gospel to Christians. Because you see, there are two ways to miss the grace of God. You can miss the grace of God by being a pagan. You can miss the grace of God by being a Pharisee. You can miss the grace of God by being the prodigal son, or you can miss the grace of God by being the older brother. You can miss the grace of God by being unrighteous, or you can miss the grace of God by being self-righteous. And so when we talk about being gospel-centered, we mean that the gospel is something different than religion. It's a different category entirely. In Isaiah's day, He was preaching the gospel in the same way to the same groups of people. On one side, you had what Isaiah refers to as the nations. That's the the pagans, the idolaters, those who don't worship God and don't pretend to. But then, on the other hand, you see him speaking this morning to this people. And he's referring to the people of God, the religious people of his day. See, Isaiah is a gospel-centered prophet. He's calling people to a third way of relating to God that's different from 
paganism, and that's different from religion. And theologians refer to this theme in Isaiah's preaching and writing as the idea of the remnant. A remnant, as you know, is sort of a a leftover piece of something. In, In Isaiah's writing, the remnant refers to the people among God's people who really do trust in His grace and embrace the gospel. The remnant implies that among people who profess faith in God, there are those who actually embrace the good news of the gospel. God was seeking a remnant in Isaiah's day, and God is seeking a remnant in our day as well. Here's the reality in our situation, in our culture. 46% of people who live in Omaha are professing Christians who attend church. That's not people who are religious. That does not include Buddhists and Hindus and other religions. This is professing Christians who attend a church. 46% according to the 2010 census. The question is, can you tell? Does Omaha display the kind of civic virtue that you would expect if 46% of the people within our city are followers of Jesus Christ? Is business in our city different? Is politics in our city different? Is education in our city different? Do we display the virtues and the characteristics and the qualities of what you would expect of a city where almost half the people are followers of Jesus? The question sort of answers itself, doesn't it? The answer clearly is no. No, our city does not display what you would expect it to display if that statistic holds true. Why? Because you see, religion is something different than the gospel. The fact that people adhere to a religion called Christianity is something very different than a people who embrace a reality called the gospel. And so as we are articulate our mission as a church, we say that Corndale Church exists to spur gospel renewal in our city and in our region. And what we mean by that is that we want to turn religious people into gospel people. We want to see professing Christians become Jesus-worshiping, Spirit-filled Christians. And you see, this idea of renewal was Isaiah's mission as well. He was a prophet of Renewal. He was seeking to call the people of God to true, renewing, redeeming faith in the gospel. And in the last half of Isaiah 8, God shows us what gospel renewal looks like. What does this kind of renewal among a people look like as it begins to take shape? God is inviting you and I this morning to be part of the remnant. A people renewed by and defined by the grace of the gospel. And here's what I want you to see in Isaiah chapter 8. As the gospel begins to awaken us, as the gospel begins to renew us, it awakens us to a new kind of fear, a new kind of faith, and a new foundation. A new kind of fear, a new kind of faith, and a new foundation. Let's look together at Isaiah's call to renewal In chapter 8, Isaiah 8, verse 11, begins this way, For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Okay, there's the key phrase. Saying, 
Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. So you see, immediately Isaiah is drawing a contrast between what the people fear and what Isaiah and the remnant are to fear. He says, Isaiah, I know the people around you fear this. I don't want you to fear what they fear. Instead, I want you to fear me. It's true, isn't it, that whatever you fear will control you. That's how fear works. There's a controlling nature to it. Whatever you fear will end up controlling you. So my daughter Grace is afraid of, she fears fear. She fears scary stories, really, is, is a fair way to say it. She doesn't like to be afraid. She doesn't like when I tell scary stories. And so the other night, we were sitting around the fire pit in the backyard, and the other kid said, hey, Daddy, will you tell us a scary story? And now I'm sensitive to the fact that Grace doesn't like scary stories, and so I tried to you know, back it up and just tell sort of a suspenseful story that wouldn't be too alarming to her. But as soon as she began to sense the tones of suspense in the story, she said, I think I'm going to go inside. She's controlled by her fear of scary stories such that she doesn't want to be in a place where those scary stories are being told. And we're all exactly like Grace, aren't we? Now, we're we're not afraid of scary stories, perhaps, but we're controlled by the fear of, for instance, failure. Or the fear of what people think. Or maybe the fear of being found out or being exposed in some way. Whatever you fear has a way of controlling you. And you see, in Isaiah's day, his people, his counterparts, were afraid of the coming invasion. As we read about last week, they're facing the threat of invasion by Syria and by Israel, and that to them is a defining fear. Their fear of that event and what might come with it prevents them from being able to trust in God despite the circumstances. But God says, Isaiah, don't be like them. I don't want you to fear what they fear. You fear me. I'm the one you should be afraid of. I'm the one who should have the most weight and significance in your life. I'm the most terrifying reality that exists. You fear me. Don't fear what they fear. Have you ever thought about how healthy the fear of God is? You ever thought about the fear of God as the answer to anxiety and fear? Right? We fear other things because we're made to fear something. We're made to fear God. And one of the greatest antidotes One of the things that makes us psychologically and spiritually healthy is when we actually fear God the way we ought to. So that we can be delivered from fearing other things. All kinds of other things that create concern and anxiety and pressure in our lives are relief when we actually just fear God. When we know and are overwhelmed by who He is. By His attributes and character. It brings a sense of sanity into our lives. And so one of the characteristics of gospel-changed people 
gospel-renewed people is a decrease of fear and anxiety in their lives. It doesn't mean that once you embrace the gospel, all your other fears go away, but it does mean there's, there's a decrease. There begins to be a minimizing of other sources of fear and anxiety because there's a rightful fear of God in place. Here's the easiest way to see it. Some of you have had this experience. Some of you haven't yet. But the easiest way to see how this works is when you watch a gospel-confident, Christ-loving Christian face death. When you watch a Christian die, it changes what you think about the gospel. I was talking to two people in our church who have watched relatives face death recently. In one case... Uh, this friend was um, dying and, and a religious woman and, and gripped by fear. Didn't want lights off because she was afraid, wanted more drugs so she could avoid the trauma and the anxiety of what was to come. There was just a, an anxiousness and a fear and a turmoil within her. This friend who was telling me about her death said it was just hard to watch. There was so much turmoil and anxiety and fear and panic. Then I had another friend who told me about her father who died early from cancer. He was a man who loved the Lord. His death was hard because it came at an inopportune time. He was in the prime of life. Gathered his kids around him. Said, hey, I wasn't planning to go this way. I know you weren't either, but God is good. We're hoping in him. I love Jesus. I'm not afraid to face death. Don't you doubt him either. Let's pray together. Just a tremendous, fierce courage in the face of one of the most fearful things anyone can experience. See, when you fear God, the fear of everything else in your life gets relativized. There's nothing that brings with it a deep and anxiety-producing fear when the fear of God has its rightful place in your life. God says to Isaiah, hey, look, I know there's lots of things in the circumstances around that these people around you are going to fear. Don't be like them. You fear me. Count me as holy. Let me be your fear. Let me be your dread. See, when the gospel begins to renew us and awaken us, it brings with it a new kind of fear. The right kind of fear. And so a great question to ask yourself is simply this question, what are you afraid of? David asked that question to us in worship a few weeks ago. What are you afraid of? Are you concerned and troubled by the same kinds of things that all the people around you are concerned and troubled by? Or is there in your life a healthy sense of the fear of God that is beginning to minimize and lessen other fears and anxieties in your life? When the gospel renews us, it brings about a new kind of fear, a fear of God rather than a fear of man and a fear of circumstances. But secondly, as the gospel renews us, it brings about a new kind of faith. You know, right, that people, people can use the same word and mean different things by it, right? So when I say a new kind of faith, some of you are going to get nervous because you're like, I thought there was only one kind of faith, like the kind the Bible talks about. Yes, Theologically, that's true, right? But you and I both know that in our culture, people use the word faith, and what they really mean is religion, right? Like, hey, are you a person of faith? Are you part of a household of faith? Are you part of a community of faith? What they mean is, 
Are you religious? Do you go to church somewhere? You're part of some religious community. And so when I say that the gospel brings about a new kind of faith, I mean it brings about the faith the Bible actually talks about, which is different than what our culture means from the word faith. Hopefully I'll clear that up as we go forward. Right? Maybe I just confused you in complex ways. Look what Isaiah says in verse 14. And he, that is God, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So so do you notice he's saying God is going to become both a sanctuary and a snare? How can the same God be both a sanctuary, a place of refuge, and a snare, something that trips people up? Well, it all depends on how you approach God. How you experience God depends entirely on how you approach God. Let me explain. Here's how religious people approach God. Religious people approach God with the assumption that if I obey then God will accept me. If I do the right thing, if I'm a good religious person, if I'm observant, if I'm obedient, if uh, I'm a church-going person, if I do whatever my religion expects of me, or my religious community expects of me, then God will accept me. Religion is all about performance. It's about me living up to a certain standard. So, how is it that that becomes a trap and a snare? Well, if you try to relate to God based on your performance, if your assumption is, um, because I obey, God will accept me, one of two things always happens. Either you get worn out trying to live up to your own standard. right? You try to do the religious thing, but you're continually frustrated because you're not as good a person as you think you ought to be, and so you eventually give up. How many of you, that's part of your story, right? You grew up religious, you couldn't be as as good and observant as, a, as your religion said you should be, and so you just kind of gave up. Like, well, I guess I'm not a good Christian, so I'll stop trying to be one. So, it either trips you up that way, or, or, even worse, you actually think you are living up to what a good Christian should be, and so you become smug and self-righteous, and you look down on other people who aren't. So, Religion, relating to God based on performance, always ensnares you either in despair or in self-righteousness. That's where you get stuck. If you try to relate to God based on performance, you'll end up either in despair or in self-righteousness. But this text doesn't say that religion is going to be a snare. It says that God himself is going to become a stumbling block. How does that come about? Well, because for people who try to approach God through religion, for people who try to approach God based on their own performance, the death and resurrection of Jesus makes no sense. In fact, the death and resurrection of Jesus is utterly unnecessary. If we approach God based on performance, if What God is really after is you being a good person and then he will accept you. You don't need Jesus to die and you don't need him to rise from the dead. It does not matter. 
Now, his life is still meaningful to you because it shows you, maybe it sets a good moral example for the kind of person you should try to be. Which, by the way, is how a lot of people talk about Jesus, right? Jesus is a great moral example. We should all try to be more like him. You know what that is? True, he was a good moral example, and we should try to be like him. And that's religion. Let's try to perform the way Jesus performed. Let's try to be good like Jesus was good. See, Jesus becomes the stumbling block for religious people because his death on the cross and his resurrection of the dead makes no sense and does not factor into the equation anywhere. And so the whole reality of Good Friday and Easter Sunday is kind of like, well, I guess the only reason we celebrate this is because it's part of our religious ethos. It's part of our tradition. But why in the world Jesus had to die and why Jesus had to rise from the death, no idea. Jesus becomes the stumbling block, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul acknowledges as he reflects back on redemptive history. And as he looks back at the Jewish people, the people Isaiah is writing to, and observes that many of them, rather than coming to know God through the gospel, through grace, fell into performance, into religion, into the trap that we're talking about. Look at Romans chapter 9. This is fascinating reflection by the Apostle Paul on what Isaiah is talking about. Look at this, Romans 9, 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, the pagans, the unrighteous people, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith, by grace, because of God's goodness. But that Israel, who pursued a law, a religion, that would lead to righteousness, I obey, therefore God will accept me, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now catch his conclusion. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written in Isaiah chapter 8, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul is offering you here an inspired commentary on the book of Isaiah. He's saying, this is what Isaiah was talking about. When he said they were stumbling over a stumbling block, this is exactly what happened. Here's what happened. People tried to pursue God based on a set of rules that if they were just good enough by their own works, they could achieve righteousness. And guess what happened? They, they, they misunderstood completely who Jesus is and why he came. And then there's other people who weren't even righteous in the first place and weren't trying to be righteous, and they lucked their way into righteousness. How? Because God's grace came to them and they responded in faith. Paul is saying the gospel introduces us to a new kind of faith, which is really the old kind of faith that's always been. It's a new way of relating to God. Gospel faith, you see, approaches God as a sanctuary. Gospel faith sees, I'm not saved by work, but by rest 
in the work of Christ. And so instead of God being a stumbling block, instead of Christ himself being something that trips me up because he doesn't make sense and I can't make sense of why I need to be saved from something in the first place, he's a sanctuary, he's a place of rest. Biblical faith is resting in what God has done through Christ. And those who approach God in that way find Him to be a sanctuary. The same God is both a sanctuary and a snare. And it all depends whether you approach Him based on faith, based on the gospel, or based on works, performance, religion. Isaiah says when, you, when your eyes are open to the gospel, when, when the gospel renews you, when God in His grace comes and opens your eyes to what He's doing to save His people, it brings about a new kind of faith. A peaceful, joyful rest in the finished work that Christ has accomplished. So gospel renewal brings about a new kind of fear, a new kind of faith, and finally, It brings about a new foundation. I want you to notice in this last paragraph in Isaiah chapter 8, the continued emphasis on teaching, testimony, word. What Isaiah is telling us is that the true foundation of God's people is the word of God. That's what we stand on. That's the basis for trust and confidence in God. It's His word. And notice... Part of what God's rebuking here is that that's not what this people is looking for. He says, look Isaiah, I want you to hold fast to my word, to the teaching, to the testimony. But what this people is doing is they're running to the mediums and to the necromancers. They're going to the horoscopes and to the palm readers and to the Oprah book club to see if anybody has a more updated word from God that's a little more culturally relevant. That's what they're doing. Anytime the gospel renews a people, do you know what else gets renewed? Their love for God's word. When the gospel renews us, it awakens in us a new love and a new delight in the word of God. A desire to know it, a desire to be shaped by it, a desire to stand on it. That's what the gospel brings with it. So a gospel church, a gospel-centered church, a gospel-renewed church is always a Bible church. A church where the scriptures are held in honor. And not just held in honor in the sense that we put them on the shelf and respect them, but held in honor in the sense that we want to dig into them and know them and build our lives on them. Notice the amazing doctrine of scripture that's given in this paragraph. Bind up the testimony... Seal the teaching among my disciples. So notice he says, bind up and seal. The idea is that there's some uh, delivered body of truth that's being gathered together and preserved. This is the scriptures. And the word teaching here is literally the word Torah. That's what it is in Hebrew. It's the word that the Jewish people use to refer to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. So it really says, bind up the testimony, seal the Torah among my disciples. And really, this word testimony and Torah is is the same word the Bible uses to speak of the law and the prophets. It's the shorthand that Jesus himself used to refer to the whole Old Testament. So really, what's being said here is, look, Isaiah, 
Gather up my word. Preserve it. Hang on to it. And build your life on it. Notice the rhetorical question that's in verse 19. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who cherish, hey, can we go find somebody else to tell us what God thinks? I mean, this Bible, this word of God's kind of outdated and kind of old and kind of antiquated. What does Oprah have to say? Should not a people inquire of their God? That's a rhetorical question, right? Hey, if you're God's people, shouldn't you be inquiring of God? The implied answer is what? Yes, right? Like, God's assuming your answer to this question is, well, yeah, that would make sense. Okay, so how do we go about inquiring of our God? Verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. So do you see what's being said here? Hey, let's say we want to inquire of God. Let's say that we want to know what God has to say. Where should we go to find that out? To the law and the prophets. To the Bible. That's where you go to find out what God has to say. Something about us would rather look elsewhere, right? We'd rather turn on the TV or search the internet for some person who has a blog somewhere and will tell us what God has to say or reinterpret what God has to say in a way that we think is more significant or meaningful. God says, hey, shouldn't you inquire of me? Here's how to do it. To the teaching and to the testimony, to the law and to the prophets, read your Bible. Know your Bible. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. They won't walk in truth and wisdom and be awakened if they don't speak according to this word. Can I just meddle with you for a second? How many of you in your missional communities bring the word of God to bear? on people's lives. We need to do that more. Here's what often happens. Somebody shares something that's going on in life or shares something they're wrestling with in their faith or in their journey with God. And, And what we often do is we default to what? Oh man, I'm sorry. Here's my advice for you. And sometimes I want to say, I love you, but no one cares what you think. Let's open the Bible and talk about it, right? Let's give me a Bible. Does the Bible have anything to say about what this person is experiencing? I think it does. Because it's God's word. So, let's talk about it. Which implies that we ought to know it and be able to speak it and apply it and bring it to bear on our actual lives and our actual situations. Isaiah says, a people that is renewed by the gospel, a church that's renewed by the gospel, speaks according to this word. They love it. They revere it. They know it. They walk according to its light. And notice what he says. If they're not going to walk according to this light, they have no dawn. There's not another light that takes the place of this light. If they're not going to walk according to my word, they're going to walk in darkness. And and Isaiah knows, and God knows as he's speaking this word to Isaiah, that that's exactly what this people is going to do. Instead of walking according to the word, they're going to walk according to their own opinions, and here's what's going to happen. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They're going to be mad and upset at God because it's all his fault. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What they're going to reap is just more darkness, more confusion. 
You see, God is inviting you and I this morning to be part of the remnant. To not walk in darkness, but rather to walk in light. He's inviting us to a new kind of fear and a new kind of faith and a new foundation. Isaiah is speaking this word to his people and he's speaking this word to us because the same realities apply in our day. God's inviting you this morning to be different from this people, this 46% in our city who claim to be his people. He wants you, Cormdale, to be different, to be a remnant, to be distinct, to be marked as a gospel-shaped, gospel-formed, gospel-believing, gospel-renewed people who are set apart by a different fear, a different faith, and a different foundation. I mean, look, aren't you tired of the same old thing anyway? Aren't you tired of what passes for Christianity, the religion as we know it? Aren't you tired of the fear of man and the fear of everything else in the world? Christians who react in exactly the same ways to all the circumstances of life as everybody else, aren't you tired of being that person? Wouldn't you like to be a person who has the capacity to respond differently to the circumstances of life? Aren't you tired of a faith that's really about what you do and whether you're doing enough and whether you've been to church enough this year or this month and whether you're doing all the things you should do to meet God's expectations? Are you tired of that yet? Aren't you tired of people who modify God's word and find ways around God's word and reinterpret God's word in ways that make a ton of sense for the next 10 years and then will be obsolete? Are you ready to return and be renewed to a vibrant and living fear of God, to a vibrant and living faith in the God who gives his grace to people in Christ and to stand on the word of God? Doesn't that sound better? and fuller, and more life-giving, and more freeing than what's passing for religion, Christianity, all around you. God invites you this morning to a new kind of fear, a new kind of faith, and a new foundation. And the way in is by resting in what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. The way in is everything we're about to celebrate this week. The way in is resting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which we need all of. Because we as sinful people need to be reconciled to a holy God. Won't you join the remnant this morning? Won't you respond in faith to the message Isaiah is preaching? Won't you come and be renewed by faith in the grace of God and his offer of forgiveness in the gospel? That's what Isaiah wants for you. That's what I want for you. I want to close a little differently this morning. I want to invite you to respond in a different way this morning. Because really what we're going to have a chance to do is we want to journey through this next week as the remnant people of God together. See, notice what Isaiah says here. The Lord spoke thus to me. He gave me this word. And then verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Isaiah knows God right now is hiding his face from his people, 
But despite that, I'm going to hope in him and wait for him. Why? Because that's what his word tells me to do. Because I know what he has promised. I know what he said is going to happen. And so I'm going to hope in him and wait for him, even in spite of the fact that God is right now hiding his face. We're about to head into a week where we get to practice exactly what Isaiah is talking about here. Because the reality of Good Friday is God hid his face from his own son. And we want to enter into that reality existentially. We don't just want to sort of fly over the surface of Holy Week this week. What we want to do as a people is experience the reality, the existential and emotional realities of what it means for God to hide His face from His Son in judgment. To experience the sorrow and the grief and the sadness of Good Friday. And then to know the joy and the celebration of Easter Sunday. And so really what I want to ask you to do and invite you to do is to sort of participate this week in a way that connects us to redemptive history. In a way that that connects us even to Isaiah and to his people. Here's what I mean. We stand on this side of the cross and on this side of Easter Sunday. And I think it's easy for us to look back on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday and to say, yep, that happened. That's part of our story. We should celebrate that. We should remember that. But because we know this side of the story, it's, it's easy for us to do that in sort of an abstract and removed way. But you see, Isaiah's living before the cross. He's living in a different period in redemptive history. And so as he's saying, I know the Lord is hiding his face, I'm just going to wait and hope in him, he doesn't know fully all that's coming. He has promises to hang on to, but he doesn't know the fullness of how that's going to unfold. And so he's just really saying, I'm going to hope in God in the midst of this darkness. I'm trusting Him. And so we have a chance this week as the people of God to to engage in that sort of a way, in a way that says we're a part of God's people all throughout history. And the story of God's people throughout history is hope in the midst of darkness, awaiting the promise of what is to come in the midst of circumstances that don't encourage us to hope. And so here's how I want you to sort of engage this morning. We're going to, in the end of this service, as I pray in a minute, we're going to transition toward communion and toward a time of worship. And the end of this service, rather than being sort of celebratory and let's go out of here joyful, it's going to be a little more somber. Let's go out of here reflective. Let's go out of here sort of entering into the journey that's going to end on Good Friday where we come deeply in contact with our own darkness and our own sin and with the darkness of the crucifixion. And so as you come to communion this morning, here's the question I want you to ask yourself. Where do you need renewal? Isaiah is talking about renewal. He's inviting us to renewal. And he's saying, I'm going to hope in God to bring renewal. And so this morning as you sit here, where do you need renewal? Where do you need the grace of God to meet you? I want you to ponder that. And as you come to communion this morning, I want you to come asking God to renew you. To bring a fresh, a vibrant, a renewed sense of hope and joy. Maybe a renewed sense of 
weightiness of your own sin. As you come to communion this morning, I'm just going to invite you to come seeking and longing for renewal. And that's how we respond in faith this morning to what Isaiah's said, to what Isaiah's inviting us to. And then we're going to gather back here on Good Friday, gather at the Holland on Easter Sunday, and, and we're going to sort of journey through this week with one another. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go right to communion. And so the way we practice communion is there will be three stations here at the front with bread and wine, three in the back with bread and, bread and grape juice, and one over here that's gluten-free if you need that. I want to invite you to take the time you need to sort of meditate, reflect, and then come with your hands open, um, seeking renewal from God and receiving the bread and wine as God's promise to you of renewal. That God is with us this morning. That He hears you and knows what you need. That He's willing to bring the renewal of the gospel into your life. And the reason you know that and I know that is because He's already sent His Son. And so would you come this morning just longing for His renewing work and receiving the elements as, in a sense, His down payment, His promise, His sign to you of that. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then don't come and partake of communion. This isn't something that we want you to do out of just religious ritual or because you feel like this is what you should do if you're at church. Rather, what I want to encourage you to do is to ponder the question, what does renewal look like for you? Maybe it looks like for the first time, trusting in Jesus, moving away from religion and moving to a true place of gospel faith. And then in that case, the first step for you is to, to tell some other people about that, to pursue baptism, and then to come to the Lord's table after that. So you feel free to just use this time to reflect, to ponder, to ask the question of what God's doing in your life and in your heart. But let's come together and seek the renewing grace of God as we close our time this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we sang earlier this morning, Unholy and impure are all our thoughts and ways. But you bring us sanctifying grace. So thank you that we can affirm the bad news of who we really are and how we really are. And that we can embrace the good news that you offer us grace, forgiveness, redemption in the midst of our brokenness. And so I want to pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you just all over this room would just be awakening in us an awareness of where we need renewal. Just help us come to you with longing, with a desire to be awakened, refreshed, renewed, rekindled in our affections for you. Father, for those whose hope in you has grown dim, would you bring them renewal this morning? For those whose obedience to you has grown stagnant, would you bring them renewal this morning? For those whose doubts are fierce, would you bring them renewal this morning? For those who are plagued by internal turmoil, would you bring them renewal this morning? As we enter into this week as your remnant people, would you renew us in the hope and the joy of the gospel? And even as the rain falls outside now, would you let it be a reminder of, of how we need to be refreshed by your grace, regularly, even as the ground needs to be refreshed, refreshed with moisture. God, we need the renewing work of your grace in our lives. 
And so would you help us to come with hands empty this morning, longing for you to fill us up and renew us. And Father, for those in this room who have not yet come to a true faith in you, would you this morning open their eyes to how the good news of the gospel is something so different from salvation by works, from trying to be the kind of people you call us to be. Would you help them this morning to despair of ever being that, to see that they can't be? And instead, would you bring them to rest in the Lord Jesus and in what he's done? So we come to you this morning as your people, and we invite you to renew us. Amen.